1: From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome
0: to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Mike check, Mike check. Here we go again. Hopefully, everybody's having a good week. It is Hump Day, and uh, that means the week's half over for me. And uh, I always look forward to Wednesdays because I know that once I hit about 10 o'clock noon, then it's all downhill to the weekend. And that's when I like to have fun with the family and get to do what I want to do and you know, just hang, do some relaxing. Uh again, trying to get out and shed hunt. Maybe that's gonna happen. Actually, no, it's not gonna happen because I have to help my brother move. So no fun stuff this weekend other than lifting heavy things and putting them in a truck and then unloading them and then putting them into a different house. Anyway, that's what I'm gonna be doing this weekend. I gotta keep this quick because we have a lot to get to in this specific introduction first and foremost, the podcast today is with a gentleman named Andrew Toigo. He lives in Southern Illinois. And this podcast is about how he used maps and certain resources to identify public property, how he took a 4,000 piece, I think it's 4,000 acres of Public whittled it down into specific areas to attack during the hunting season through scouting and uh, you know hunting and scouting, and how he uses that strategy to basically be successful on public ground in southern Illinois. So that's what today's podcast is about. Now, in the podcast, he mentions Huntera maps and I figured I'd give a shout out to my buddy Ben Harshine of Huntera Maps. Now, I, I know him on a friend level, so I called him up and I'm like, dude, do you want to run a discount? Uh, because a guy mentions Huntera Maps, and he's like, well, I never run specials. And I'm like, come on, dude, I only have nine fingers. And then he says, you know what the hell, let's do it. So if you go to Huntera.com, wednesday thursday and friday of this week and let me pull a calendar up so i have the actual official dates for you it is the 31st of january the first of february and the second of february he's going to be running a special on all printed maps so if you enter the discount code nine fingers you will save 20% on all of Huntera's printed maps. So, if you've ever been looking for a map of a specific hunting property or a piece of public ground, and uh, now is an opportunity to save money, Huntera.com, use the discount code 9Fingers, and you will receive 20% off of all printed maps. And then uh, if you want to, you can add your, uh, a mobile map as well. So, uh, But the, the discount is for printed maps. Take advantage of that if you're looking for a map. Now, the commercial today is with Gearhead Archery. I tell you what, I have had a lot of good feedback, especially since the last time I think I ran a Gearhead uh, commercial, and that was man, I want to say that was like the 10th or something of this month, but since then I've had a lot of guys come back to me and say, dude (laughs) I've shot a gearhead finally and it's badass, so all I want to say for this is go to gearheadarchery.com take a look at Uh, the bows that they offer they have now a 30 a 33 and i believe a 36 inch axle to axle along with their 18 20 and 24 axle to axle is what they kind of came into the industry with and please don't rule these guys out on your when you're looking to make your next bow purchase because i'm telling you it has everything you want in a good hunting boat it's dead in the hand it's quiet Right, So that equals efficiency, and the design is lightweight and is great for packing in and out of uh, of the tree stand. So please go find a dealer or go to a local show or drive an hour or two hours and just go shoot a GearHead, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised in the outcome. GearheadArchery.com, Check them out. Boom. All right. I think that's it. Hopefully everybody's having a great week let's get into today's i guess public land bs session podcast with illinois native andrew toigo all right on the phone with me right now mr andrew toigo how you doing man good good so hunt you live in west you live in illinois right now right Yep, on the St. Louis side of Illinois. On the St. Louis side of Illinois. Okay, and is that the is that the bad part of St. Louis?
1: Well, um, certain parts. I, anyway. I tell people I live I live in northeast St. Louis instead of East St. Louis, but, <laughs> um, but I'm about twenty twenty minutes from um, the bad part. I can. Uh, I can go one direction and be at Home Depot in a mile, and and then I look the other direction out of my house, and it's nothing but cornfields and and deer country. So I'm in a pretty decent spot.
0: So me and my family are St. Louis Cardinals baseball fans, right? So my dad would take me and my brother down when we were kids at least once or twice a year down to St. Louis uh, to watch a, a game at the Old Bush Stadium. And the ride in my dad would always tell the same story about uh in the i think it was in the late 70s my dad took a wrong turn and crossed the river into saint uh, into east st louis and he stopped at a <laughs> gas station to go in and ask somebody for like my mom and him went in to ask someone for directions and when he came out two of the car, uh, tires on their car were completely off and gone <laughs> someone, someone in like a matter of five, 10 minutes stole two of the tires off of their car.
1: <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. When I, when I had first um, started traveling here, getting ready to move from Dallas to St. Louis, I had accidentally pulled off the side of the road, same thing. And a police officer found me driving around in some bad parts of town with one of my coworkers and. In, in, told us to just follow him out. (laughs) He knew we weren't supposed to be there. That's crazy that there's places like that. You know what I mean? Yep. 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 They're, they're cleaning them up slowly, but surely. Right. Right. All right. So you live
0: in, you know, Southern Illinois and, uh, Mm -hmm. what do you do for a living?
1: Well, I work for a chemical company, um, and we sell water treatment chemicals and, um, I kind of handle the corporate sales and um, sales strategy for our power division. So I just kind of hop around the U.S. now and help our our sales team um, sell more chemicals to power plants.
0: Gotcha. So, like, give us a a rundown. What do your chemicals do?
1: Well, um, anything in regard to water treatment. So, um, clarification. Um, boilers, cooling towers, wastewater treatment plants, um, do a lot of work helping the power plants, um, with their EPA discharge limits and, um, just kind of staying environmentally friendly and, and keeping on the up and up from that standpoint. And, um, uh, the, the perk is most of the people that I work with at these plants and most of the locations of the plants are, uh, in deer hunting, um, heaven. So nice. I get to just hop around and talk to other guys that deer hunt and, um, it's, it's pretty fun. Has that ever opened
0: uh, a door for you as far as new hunting properties is concerned?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I met a, a couple guys at a new power plant that we're talking to over in Missouri a few weeks ago. And, um, they, they have, you know, they have a lot of public land around and in private land that they have access to around there and we're already talking about snow goose hunting and nice um and kind of trading a, a hunt in missouri for a hunt in illinois on public and, and and sharing that next one we'll...
0: nice nice so we had a guy on the podcast his name uh, was patrick rubendall or rubendale or rubendall and he lived in i think south dakota and he was a traveling I guess salesman and he like redid floors for gyms and schools and Mm -hmm. so what he would do is he would drive around back and forth to all these places and he would look at a map for where all the public land was at so he'd put a trail camera Mm -hmm. up he'd go do his business come back a couple days later check the trail camera and that's where he would figure out where to hunt that year based off of, uh, you know, what those trail cameras were telling him. So he had trail cameras all over certain parts of that state on public ground. And then, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, and he laid down a giant one year doing that. But uh, so in Illinois, I mean, are you on a lot of, when you hunt, are you on a lot of private, a lot of public?
1: When I had moved down here, up here from Dallas, but I'm down from where I'm originally from when I had moved here, um, I kind of tried to dabble in, in private lands cause I had a couple local friends that had, you know, 40 here or 60 there. And, um, and I was always looking for public, for private land. Um, but as my, um, interests matured a little bit and just the, uh, I found that I was able to find bigger deer and have more flexibility and more, um, I could in, um, enable a little bit more strategy to hunting on public land versus private. Um, when you've got a 7,000 acre piece of public land somewhere, um, which there are a lot of chunks like that in Southern Illinois, um, you can hop around. You're not limited to one sixty, and and, yeah. and it's not a 3000 acres or $3,000 a year lease. Right. So right. the leases are hard to come by here. Um, it's hard to just go knock on doors, at least in this area and fine lengths. We're so close to a city. Yeah. So um li- largely what I found is the public land is it's kind of untapped in this area. Everybody's got a a brother in law or a father in law or an uncle that's got public or private land and they might have four guys on a forty and the the public land button up to it has, you know, two guys at a parking lot for nine hundred acres. Yeah.
0: And that's awesome.
1: Um, so Yep.
0: You know, back in the day, Illinois used to be what Iowa is today, right? So everybody wanted to to go to Illinois to hunt these big bucks. They wanted to lease and buy property. And then, you know, it eventually just got so whored out that uh, hunting opportunities in Illinois just went straight down unless doing what you're doing hunting on public ground, you know, for the average mm-hmm. guy in almost, you know, certain parts of the, of the state became impossible to hunt unless you owned or leased. Right. Yeah. So did you ever have to go through any scenarios like that where you were maybe on a piece of property and then there was a shift and then it either got sold or the landowner said, Hey, we're going to lease it this year.
1: Yeah, I've, I've had that happen a few times. Um, I, I had that actually happen to me when I was living in Western Wisconsin. Um, uh, specifically that's kind of an area a lot like Pike County, yeah. um, where there's a lot of outfitters and you know you kind of have the white tail property effect. Um, um, I mean, it, it's a great company and, and, and everything they're doing, but, um, it tends it's, I've seen it kind of drive the prices up on some things and just oh, yeah. get properties out there in front of people more readily. Um, so they're getting snatched up. You don't, you don't um, you don't see a lot of properties being sold word of mouth anymore. Um, yeah. They're getting listed, and the, there's there's a lot of competition. So, I was actually in Western um, Wisconsin. It's actually uh, Trempealeau County. It's kind of in that Buffalo County area when I was going to school at University of Wisconsin eau And I had just driven around knocking on doors and and found. Um, a nice property there about 320 acres and I hunted that by myself for four years and over time I had knocked on some more doors and got to know the neighbors and built it up to almost 500 acres of land to just hunt myself Um, but as time went on more people got into hunting I feel like and leases became more of a thing and um, by I think it was 2009 they ended up Um, kind of dividing that farm up for various leases and just kind of running me off. Um, but I, at that time was, was moving down to Dallas. So yeah, um, it wasn't that big of a deal. So how long did you live in Dallas? I was there for a year and a half. And did did you hunt um, down there? I tried. I didn't. Uh, I was just driving back up and hunting in Western Wisconsin um, now that I know a little bit more about what's going on in Texas, just, just through work, I, I wish I had, um, done a little bit more in regard to deer hunting down there. I did go hog hunting a few times, yeah. um, just in river bottoms and whatnot, but I, I didn't actually, uh, do any deer hunting there. I, I ended up with, I would just pick a couple, um, rec- rec- vacations and just do it that way right, back right. in Wisconsin. So.
0: You kind of mentioned that living in Illinois near St. Louis, you know, it's a big city center. Lots of people come out. But you mentioned that the public land maybe gets a little overlooked. I talked with a guy last week who lives in, you know, north, about an hour north of Detroit, and he said the public land there is absolutely hammered. So yep. why, so go into a little bit more detail about why you think that, especially around that particular part is maybe not it, the public land there's overlooked.
1: Well, I'll tell you that I drive, um, in the morning, um, I drive a lot for work. So on the weekends, it's not that big of a deal for me to justify getting up at 3am and driving two hours um, to go sit in the stand for a morning sit. Gotcha. So I'm hunting kind of property, um, within a two hour radius of, of where I live. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity there and, um, a lot of it's rural. So, um, like I said before, most of the people that live kind of close to these areas have somebody in their family with private land gotcha so um, the general kind of consensus in those areas is that well the, the public's over hunted um, and I just don't see that when I run into guys out on this private land it's like somebody like Eric who is from Michigan or somebody from Alabama or Louisiana yeah. Yeah. Um, in areas like that you don't get a lot of locals out there right and they're you know Illinois doesn't have the public land like um, Missouri or, um, you know, back home in Wisconsin and and areas like that, they don't have the big woods, but the quality of the public land is really good. It's usually, um, it's usually either kind of strip mine ground or around big reservoirs. Okay. So you have, you have a lot of food, a lot of water and a lot of cover. Right. Um, so everything that's good for a whitetail, right? Yep yeah and you have quality private land a lot of times that's surrounding all of this public land okay. i mean and it's just when you're when you're hunting public land it's just as important to hunt the private around it right um you know from a deer travel aspect as it is to hunt the maps on right. the public land themselves
0: so quick question
1: how long yep.
0: have you been in the area that you're
1: currently hunting I've lived in this area for about six years now, I think. Okay. All right. Um, and I've been hunting out here for four years in the I of the properties that I hunt, they probably equal about thirty thousand acres. Okay. But I've keyed in on certain spots in those. Right. Um that I just you know, if you had to try to hunt thirty thousand acres it'd be overwhelming. Right, absolutely. Um so I have some things that I've done to kinda Key in on certain areas, um, increase my odds.
0: So let's talk about that. That's one thing that I think a lot of people overlook. Right when, for me, I have access to. Oh man, I want to say somewhere between a thousand to fourteen hundred acres, and you know, some of it, a lot of it's ag fields and stuff, so that limits it down. But there are times when even that amount of property can be a little bit overwhelming as far as, you know, I'm always second guessing myself on where to hunt and, and it's almost like I wish I had someone to make a decision for me at times. So when, (laughs) when you have access to 30,000 acres, how do you go about drilling it down to find the right acre? You know what I mean? To put your tree stand on.
1: Yep. Yep. Oh, I, I know that feeling. Um, I kinda, I get the same thing sometimes, especially when you have this much land, but Um, a couple things that I did initially, um, instead of just getting out and just trying to walk all of this property, um, I had initially, um, gone through, um, I think it was Huntera maps and I had a couple of their maps made and I I just kind of marked out where all the parking lots were on this first, um, piece of property that I hunted and I drew a circle from all the parking lots around in about a quarter mile radius. Okay. Um, and then the areas that were still within public that weren't within those circles, those are the areas that I kind of focused on. And then I looked at the areas Well, of those where the the natural funnels and where the bedding areas on those. So, um, for the most part, I don't hunt food, um, because there's just so, so much food in this area and so many oak trees um in october it's almost impossible to walk in quietly because the yeah. oaks are just everywhere acorns are everywhere right um so i just kind of used that as a way to narrow down the areas that i was looking so once using aerial photos um now i use something called onyx maps yep. that i got turned on to um pretty much from my elk hunt this, this past fall. Right. Um, I've started to use that now and the Onyx maps is great because you can zoom in and see the areas that look like really dense cover. Um, and, and I kind of cross reference that with the areas that I know are, most guys aren't going to go, aren't going to walk out to. And I find the natural funnels in those areas and, um, kind of mark areas that I could get downwind of a bedding area. Right,
0: right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the question I have for you now is, so you, you said you got you had that under uh, you had that Huntera map. you drew circles mm-hmm. around all the parking lot lots, right, and then mm-hmm. you found out how much of what was not inside of those circles was left and mm-hmm. and then what was on public land. So yep. that was those were the areas that you wanted to focus on, right? Yep. Okay. So, how many acres did that leave you to to go and explore based off of what you did there?
1: Well, um, that probably cut out eighty to ninety percent. Okay. Of of what I was looking at, because the the initial farm that I started hunting four years ago, well, not farm, the initial public land piece, um, was kind of long and narrow um with a lot of fingers um most of it is is lake frontage um as is most of the public land in the state of Illinois gotcha so that that kind of narrowed down i would say 90% of it and then of that um last 10 to 20% um i was just looking for bedding areas and and areas that were kind of hard to access because um I I use a boat a lot of times to get in so that makes it easier or um, I use a mountain bike in some areas um, you know or just kind of sneak around the edges and and, and take the long way in and the way I decide on which stand to hunt is just mostly on wind direction then yeah so makes a lot of sense so then
0: you know you've you've Whittle down the areas it's like you continually to whittle them down and whittle them down do you do any preseason scouting um before you actually go in and hunt those areas or because uh the last guy i talked to with public land man he just he he finds them on a map he identifies the the location and the terrain and then he basically goes in for a hunt if that walk-in looks good or if that hunt You know, he sees something or sees good deer movement because a map can tell you a lot, but it it cannot Mm -hmm. replace boots on the ground looking around in that particular area. So how do you then whittle it down even
1: more? Most of my scouting I do in the spring. Well, really between now and the spring. Um, If you go in now, especially if you have a little bit of snow on the ground, um, which we don't get here that often, But when you do, you can see where all the beds are. You can see where all the travel areas are. Um, It's just clear as day. And you can actually see through the woods. So I can get into places now that are really hard to get in during the summer Mm -hmm. um, and and fall. And I can kind of pick my spot. So I look a little weird going around (laughs) shed hunting this time of year because I've got a climbing tree stand on my back and and a saw in my pocket and I'm walking around, and if I find a a spot that looks good, I'll set up. I'll say, you know, I'm going to hunt this, stand on this wind direction, and I'll find a tree, and I'll kind of cut off some of the the dead branches going up and whatnot, and I'll mark myself a a tree right there, and I'll go right up it and and set it up for a climber. Nice. Um, And I do all that this time of year. Um, And it it just – that way I I have – in an infinite number of options when yeah. it comes, you know, in in the fall, um, and and I do almost all of my hunting. I, I know you're a big running gun uh, fan. Yeah, you talk a lot about the uh, the assault. I think the uh, Lone Wolf assault. Yep. I think that the Lone Wolf um, climber is probably the best kept secret in public land hunting. Yeah. Um, all of the guys that you see hunting public land that shoot big deer are using these lone wolf climbing tree stands because you can get up and move so fast. If you see a doe come through 60 yards away and, and a, a buck or two behind her, you can get up and move another, you know, 40 yards Yeah. Um, in no time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's,
1: it's really handy.
0: Yeah. Being mobile is definitely a key, right? Um. Oh yeah. So... I want to elaborate on that little that little strategy that you do. I mean, this time of year, you're actually trimming your stands. Now, for me, I like to go in in the summer after all the leaves are there, because in the past I have gotten to a you know let's say a morning hunt where I don't have to. All mm-hmm. I have to do is either climb into my tree, or I have to um, set my tree stand up right there in the dark, which I try not to do. Uh, or I'll come mm-hmm. to a, you know, I'll come to a tree that I trimmed out in the summer and I'll get back up there and or a previous year that I didn't trim out in the summer and I get up there and then a shooting window has been closed, whether a branch dropped in front of it or something like that. Do you ever run into scenarios like that where, you know, you, you were really looking forward to hunting the stand, but then you got there and uh, the shooting lanes had kind of collapsed in on themselves because it had been almost like nine months since you were there last
1: yeah, actually, on, on one piece of property, um, this last year they came through and and used a, a probably a D nine dozer to doze a trail through the middle of it because they were doing some controlled burns, and they had pushed up berms of of um, of basically just debris and dirt and everything through this whole area, and it was right through one of my shooting lanes. Oh. Um, and there was no trimming that back or anything. Yeah. That was just something i I just kind of had to to shift another thirty yards. and yeah um, but yeah, that that does happen. And I will come in early season and hunt some of my um, my best stands, my best rut stands the first couple of days of season. um, just hunt them once and uh, and just make sure they're pretty cleared out. But the first few years I hunted out here, I burned out all my good stands. Yeah, early season, just getting too excited. Yeah, and that's actually something I've kind of learned from, um, from you and and Mark on on the podcast is, don't burn out your stands yeah. early season. Waiting, you know, waiting for the right moment to strike in some of your best spots. And that's the nice thing about hunting, thirty thousand acres of public land. You, you don't got, have to burn out your stands. <laughs> you got more than one, right? <laughs> Yep. And I invite buddies down from back home um, and do a little bit of scouting and set them out on other parts of the public. And not only are they having fun and in, in scouting and 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 um, shooting deer and, and having success, but they're also scouting for me. Yeah, <laughs> for Dude, that's later. a win win. That's so, a win win. Yep. More boots on the ground, learning more about the properties. It's good. And there's, there's
0: plenty of it. All right, so do you do you think that going in and doing your scouting this time of year uh, in early spring as opposed to maybe in the summertime uh, is a benefit for you because of less pressure on the areas that you actually want to hunt?
1: Yeah, and you can just see more. Um, most of the areas during the summer that I'm hunting are so grown up um, with things that, that want to poke you and, and make you itch Um <laughs> Yeah, we we went out and and scouted two summers ago during the middle of summer and we came out so covered in chiggers and ticks and poison ivy and and everything and it was just really hard to see what was going on because the underbrush was so thick yeah um so this time of year you can see where the beds are you can see where the travel areas are um the, the areas that are still thick right now are the real true bedding areas yeah um and And that's where those deer get pushed um when the pressure hits. deers that I'm hunting get hunted really hard from the end of October um, through the middle of November, middle to end of November. yeah um but most of them are are draw only for shotgun, um which helps, and some of them are a lottery for archery as well, um, <clears throat> but a lot of them aren't.
0: Okay, so then as you're doing your, you know, you're planning on how you're going to attack these public pieces of property, you know... I think when it comes to public land, there's like there's a couple tiers to the kind of public land hunter that hunts there. You got guys like yourself who sound like you're very hardcore about it. You're very serious about it. You do all the proper scouting and work. Then you got the next level who are probably not going in and scouting until right before the season starts. And then you got your third level that is. You know, your weekend warriors don't do any scouting. They hunt, you know, 25 yards from the parking lot type of guy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when you are looking at a piece of property, when does traffic, when do you see traffic start to pick up on those public pieces? And I'm not talking necessarily about just the the hunting season either,
1: but either before Mm -hmm. or after amazingly i am yet to have another hunter walk under my stand um while i'm hunting yeah um but i i definitely you can tell judging on the parking areas and you you get some rabbit hunters and you get some mushroom pickers and um we've had a kind of an infestation of of ginseng pickers <laughs> recently oh yeah um yeah that i mean they're just everywhere But, um, the, the hunters really pick up in the end of October and then obviously those first two weeks in November, it's, it's kind of chaos, but, um, that's when, that's when we get the boat out and we start going in by boat, um, or, or we, um, we just hike a little farther and and do an all day sit, um, and, and, and go that way.
0: You know, I'll tell you what, there's a theme here. There's a theme here to guys who are using water to access because one Mm -hmm. of the very first podcasts that I ever did um, on a hunter profile was, God, I wish I knew his name, but the dude takes a boat across uh, a lake to get to his piece. My buddy Lucas Psycho out in uh, North Dakota, he takes a boat uh, to get to up, up the Missouri river to get to one of his pieces. And then we got uh, guys who are using kayaks to get into places. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the deer don't even know how to process it because they've never seen a threat come via water before. So it doesn't, it doesn't spook Mm -hmm. them as much. Are, Are you noticing that as well? Like when, when you started, using a boat to uh, access stand locations. Did you see any,
1: like, did you have an aha moment? I had an aha moment this year, actually, in regard to that. Um, You know, I've grown up in northern Wisconsin, in the big woods up there. I I saw guys coming in during rifle season as a kid in kayaks down rivers and and across lakes. And um, I, I always thought that was cool, but I never really considered it again until I moved down here. Um, and you see the whitetail adrenaline guys doing this kind of stuff and other guys hunting public land, but you, you think, you know, all that's on, on TV, you know, this year we started doing this probably three years ago. And this year I was sitting on stand and the boat was 10 yards from the base of my tree, tucked in some cattails. Right. Um, I look to my left, and there's a little six-point buck coming down towards me, and I hear this motor coming through, and it's a couple of bass fishermen. So I watch these bass fishermen pulling up, and they pulled right up within 15 yards of my stand and could not see me in the tree. And I look over to this deer, and this deer's staring at the bass fishermen. He just hunkers down and almost belly crawls back up this hill and then stands at the top of the hill for 45 minutes as these guys fish the shoreline. And the minute they're around the bend, he comes and walks right in front of me and right down the shoreline and hooks around the, the, um, little bay and out of sight. No doubt. And at that point it told me these deer don't care about these boats at all. Um, they're so used to seeing bass fishermen in these areas. Um, And other fishermen and other people recreating on the water. And the thing you're doing is you're not putting your scent trail all the way into your tree stand. You're not blowing out the woods as you're coming in. Um, It's just kind of like guys who swear by driving their four-wheeler or their tractor into their stand or to go check cameras. Yeah, for sure. Um, The deer are used to it.
0: Yeah. I, and I, I've told this story a hundred times to people, but I remember, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the short version. I'm sitting in a tree stand and I watch a bud, a buck bed down in uh, along this fence line and a combine comes through and dude, the combine is less than 20 yards from him and the combine goes right by him. And this buck doesn't even stand up. Uh, and then <laughs> once the, once the combine goes by, he stood up and kind of walked away, but that tells you right there of what, what scares them and what doesn't like certain things they find as a threat. And like I guess a gigantic rumbling combine doesn't scare them as much as we think.
1: Yep. Now, one thing that I did notice this year, um, where you park the boat in regard to wind direction is actually a big factor. Okay. Um, I remember I parked my boat, um, about 200, 300 yards away from where I was going to hunt on one set and the wind direction changed and started blowing the wind onto on land versus over the water. And I listened to deer blowing down by the boat for the last half hour of the night, and I think they were just blowing at the boat, um, because the wind direction had changed. So that's one thing that I've been really careful about this year is, is watching my wind direction in regard to um, where I parked the boat as well. Yeah, man. Um,
0: so how often are you using that boat as uh, I guess, an access vehicle?
1: Well, this year I, I didn't use it that often, even though I, I had spent a lot of time in the off season getting the boat um, ready. I, I intended to hunt pretty much from the end of October into the middle of November. And I shot my buck the first day of my rut vacation. Um, my buddies from Wisconsin actually, um, arrived about 45 minutes after I had shot my deer and they were getting ready to hunt for the next 11 days with me. And, and I was tagged out. Um, but you know, in past years, um, mostly i just use it in early november to get away from the other people right um and 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 to get into those kind of all day sit deeper in the woods funnels
0: yeah yeah so let's see here so you you've you've used that water as kind of an uh you know water as a, an access route now access is key we all know this so when you're actually parking somewhere and walking in, you know, a lot of times people will follow the path of least resistance to get to wherever it is they're trying to get to. And that's either on the top of the ridge or on a well-used trail or, you know what I mean? Like they're not, Mm -hmm. they're not dropping down and walking a crick in or they're, they're not walking through some thick shit to get to, you know, the backside of a bedding area or something like that. How much, how much focus getting to those stands, you know, once you've identified an area that you want to hunt, how big of a role does access play for you?
1: On public land, access is probably the most important factor. And, um, you know, Dan Infault talks a lot about having, about where bucks bed and bedding out on peninsulas and things like that. I have seen clear as day bucks bedding on peninsulas, in areas overlooking the entrances from, from parking areas. And I know for a fact that they're sitting there and they're skirting out, um, as they hear a hunter enter during, you know, early in the morning or as they see a hunter entering at two 30 in the afternoon, they're just skirting out the backside and, 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 going to thicker cover. But they, I think a lot of these bucks bed closer to, the kind of trails and things like that. So they can keep an eye on what's going on. Yeah. Um, and, and you can see their beds clear as day. So that's why I use the, uh, the boat or I'll circle around and assuming, you know, my, the wind is just as important on your entrance as it is sitting in a stand. Yeah. So um, as long as I can get to a stand without blowing my wind through the areas that I know are bedding areas, I'll walk the extra three quarters of a mile around, um, just to get out of that. Right. And, and I try to set up the areas that I'm hunting to to allow me to do that. Right.
0: Yeah. Makes a lot of sense.
1: Okay.
0: So we've, you know, we, we get into these, these places and you mentioned that, you know, I guess just being lucky as to where you're hunting, you've never had to uh, encounter any other hunters or, you know, any other hunters, necessarily ruining any of your hunts um but have you ever made a plan or a plan of attack on a specific deer or not necessarily a specific deer but a specific area based off of where another hunter was hunting or going in or his access routes
1: yeah and when i when i look at the at the maps and kind of my game plan for the day or for the next few days um I, if, if I know I want to hunt maybe two specific out of two specific parking areas, kind of look at what's going on on the private land too, depending on that time of year. So late season, um, if I know that bedding areas on private or on public in one spot and they have to cross through public to get, um, to food, or if I know that there's two big bedding areas, and the bucks have to cross, be- are going to cross between those to check those bedding areas. Yeah. Um, I, you, you can kind of decide where you want to hunt based on that. And then I'll get in there in the morning and see how many trucks are parked there. And sometimes it's the same local guys that are there, and I share with them where, where I'm hunting. And a lot of guys are really secretive about where they hunt. I've found that nobody really wants to hunt next to somebody else. Yeah. So if you tell them I'm hunting over here, um, sometimes I get dropped off. Sometimes I park here myself. So even if my truck's not here, I might still be hunting out there. Yeah. You never know. I could be hunting there any day of the week. So, um, you know, most guys kind of get the hint and they find a different spot to hunt. Right. Um, and so, so it's not necessarily
0: I that share my, it's not necessarily that you're telling them, Hey, I'm hunting here, stay away. You're just informing yeah. them that there, there's another hunter, you know, you're, you're, you've been hunting in that area and no one really wants to go mm-hmm. hunt next to somebody else anyway. So they kind of just yep. take, they're just like, well, I don't want to hunt there if someone else is hunting there.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yep. And th- I think that's a smart way to approach it because nobody wants to be, to do two days of scouting and then realize that somebody else is hunting in that same area right there. Right. You know, so if you just share that information, it helps everybody. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So let's talk a little bit about failure because, and and we talk about this all the time on this podcast, and I think this is just a life rule, right? When you fail, you have to learn Mm -hmm. from it or you're destined to fail again. So can you give us an example of a time that you went into one of these pieces of public ground and you had this game plan in your head you failed and then you turned around and used that failure as a learning experience to maybe the next hunt the you know the hunt the next week or the next year and that turned into success for you
1: yeah um i'm i almost exclusively bow hunt but i got on some public land, I drew a tag for shotgun this year um, that I was really excited about. I did a lot of scouting and the first couple days of the season, I hunted this this one location and I just the deer were running everywhere, and it was really hard to get them funneled into an area that I could get a good shot and it was really windy, so I kind of changed things up a little bit and I tucked into this um, pine tree in this flats area overlooking um, some alfalfa um, and um, or some milo, I'm sorry, some milo and a bedding area. And I got in early and I'm sitting and all of a sudden I hear motors. And I'm thinking they're on the road behind me, but I look off to my left and this is a large chunk of public land. There were two, kids out there chasing deer through the through the uh cut field on four wheelers oh boy so i stand up and i kind of get to look and i realize that up on the ridge in front of me there's another guy in orange only 150 yards away from me and he's he's pointing towards me in the bedding area and i'm pointing towards him and he's upwind of the bedding area with all of his wind going right through the bedding area okay so So, um, at that point I got up and, and I, I just kind of turned around and started to my, what I had learned from elk hunting this fall in Colorado kind of kicked in and I started I, I cut across the road, got into this valley, got on the downwind side. Um, so that the wind was in my nose and I just started working my way, um, north up this valley on about a probably three mile walk um and just slowly worked my way through that and when i got to the end of it it was right before dark and i i got out into this field and it was another cut of field and there were 40 deer in this field wow and there were bucks chasing does. um this was late november and there was a really nice 10 pointer out there um probably four and a half year old deer And I was able to put a a sneak on them and, and get right up to them. And, um, it was at that point and it was past last light, so I didn't take a shot, but it set me up for what I decided to do for the next few days of hunting, um, during the shotgun season in that area. And, and, um, I saw a lot of action. I didn't get it done, um, with the shotgun over there. I actually, I actually shot over the top of a probably 170 inch deer. Um um in in thirty mile per hour winds. Oh yeah. But um it it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to get a steady shot during wind like that. Yeah. Um I was more or less kind of kicking myself for even taking the shot when it was done. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know I want to talk a little bit about gear because that's one thing that I do a poor job at when I'm talking to a lot of you guys who, you know, do the public land thing or the run and gun thing or, you know, wherever you hunt, we never, we never get into the gear that, uh, that we use, you know, and with you being such a mobile hunter and, you know. Attacking this public land, is there? I know you mentioned the the lone wolf climber, but is there any other products or gear that makes your life as a public land hunter easier?
1: Yeah, definitely. I'd say there's two critical things that if I don't have them with me, I don't go hunting. And the first is a really good handsaw um, because when you have a, a climbing tree stand. There might be one or two small branches that you need to, to uh, um, snip off to get up a tree. And um, so that's one of them. I, I use the Wicked Tree Saw because, it, honestly, it's so sharp that with two or three little um, strokes of the saw, you can quietly get through a little branch yep. and, and drop it out and, and be very quiet with it. Um, so I, that's one product that I would recommend. The other one, um, about four years or four or five years ago, I started to use Ozonics. Yeah. And that was an absolute game changer for me. When I started using Ozonics, um, I knew the technology, the ozone technology from what I do with my job. Um, we use ozone in power plants and in wastewater treatment plants because it's nature's, um, number one oxidizer. Right. It'll oxidize any organics, any odors in the air. So. A lot of wastewater treatment plants intentionally feed ozone to disinfect or to scrub um odors out of the air in areas that are around um you know um, um, urban areas right so okay. I knew the technology would work um but when i I first got my first ozone uh ozonics unit, I started to use it. It just kind of clicked and even this year with the buck that I shot, that deer. Came from the one spot, as, as most adult, you know, old mature deer do. Came from the one spot I expected it not to come from. Yeah. Came in right downwind, um, almost like it materialized out of the lake. And um, I actually, I was going to sit all day with that, uh, on that sit. So I was running it just on regular mode. And that buck came in straight downwind, 45 yards. It started to get a little squirrely. I just reached up and kicked it into boost mode. That deer settled down, um, walked another ten yards, and and I got a perfect broadside shot. But I know for a fact that old public land buck would not have yeah. um, gotten within shooting range if I had not used that ozone uh, system, that Ozonics. Yeah, man, I tell you what. Um, when I started
0: using Ozone, dude, I was the biggest skeptic about Ozone when I first started using it. And then, you know, I saw some results using it. And I'm just like, holy shit, I cannot believe this. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. a lot, you know, for me, it allows me to be a little bit more aggressive, you know, and everybody knows mm-hmm. that, you know, Ozonics part is a partner of this podcast. But um, it just it can be a game changer if you if you set up right and the winds are in your favor.
1: Oh yeah, I I base almost every one of my setups on um, getting to the downwind side of a bedding area and getting that deer between the bedding area and me. So um, I'll set up on like the southeast side of a bedding area with a um, west wind, and that deer thinks that it's if that deer's coming from the east to that bedding area, he thinks that that wind is in his face and he has everything pegged. But you can use that o- that ozonic system to kind of cut your scent on that angle, and the deer always thinks it's it's got the, the its nose in its favor, um, but it just kind of helps scrub that extra um, area for you to get busted, and it works every time, yeah. every single time. Yeah, it's uh... so that that's really that's the one thing that I don't I don't leave um i don't go into the woods without my bosonics. any other products boy um on my on my elk hunt this year i had some troubles with my quiver and whatnot so um you're just you putting down a lot of miles and you're cutting through really thick um, areas and my quiver kept popping off and i lost a couple arrows and um, my broad head pre deployed in my quiver because a branch got in there. Um and so when I got back, I um I got a um what's the brand, a tight spot quiver. Yeah. And that was that's a really good product. You never would think that a quiver would be a, a game changer or anything like that, but that's just a really quality built product. Gotcha. And um and that's that's helped me a lot too. Um, and just I, I never shot with a quiver on my bow, yeah, but now I've started to do that, yeah, as well, so so you know, anything to keep your bow nice and compact um really helps when you're public land hunting, and especially out of a climbing tree stand, uh, um, so that's kind of what I've been going towards lately, yeah, absolutely, all right, so
0: you know how how has your success been? overall you know let's say down especially in this uh Illinois piece over the last four years you've hunted it um Mm. have you found success all four years
1: yeah I started scouting it four years ago and in my first season out there um actually it was the first spot that I picked on the map Um, and I scouted probably a dozen different locations that year but the first spot I picked on that map is where I shot my buck that year. Oh, nice. And um, it was a nice 12-point buck, uh, my biggest buck to date. Um, so I've shot four P&Y bucks in the last three years on, on public land out here in Illinois. Nice, nice. Um, and then another, I, I got my first bull elk this year, first time elk hunting. and Went out to Colorado and public land over the counter tag. and Archery? Just put on a lot of miles and, and got one. I got a five by four. It's, you know, it leaves room for improvement. Yep. Nice. Yep. For the bow. Nice. nice, And it's absolutely delicious. We're making elk <laughs> heroes connect. Nice. Nice. My goal, my goal was just to get out there and shoot any elk to bring it back and let my wife try this elk meat so that I would have permission to go, you know, next year and the year after and the year after. Right. So mission accomplished, and I just want to just happen to have
0: horns. <laughs> That's a win for everybody, then.
1: Yep. All
0: right, so yep. There's a lot of people out there who, you know, and it sounds to me like your public land isn't near as pressured as some of the other public land uh, people that are out there. But I get emails a lot uh, about people they're struggling, right? They can't. They can't figure it out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some of this, I can give people certain tips of advice, but because I don't hunt a lot of public land, I I don't feel like it should be giving advice to people who are hunting, you know, high-pressured properties. I mean, I have to share some, uh, well, all of my properties with other hunters, and I've learned how to Mm -hmm. kind of leave their areas alone or whatnot, but... (laughs) How would, what kind of advice would you give to, let's say a guy who's struggling on public land hunting, either being successful overall or finding the right areas to hunt?
1: Well, most guys, as, as I have done this in the past as well, most guys are used to hunting on a 40 acre piece or an 80 acre piece. They pick a stand And, and they sit in that stand and and that's their spot, or they might have a couple, um, hang on stands or ladder stands and they just kind of rotate between those on that 40. Um, the beautiful thing about public is that you can move and a lot of times that's the most fun part about hunting is the scouting and the moving and the seeing new areas. Um, so my advice would be, um, limit your your time to any one particular spot and just move and things change from year to year as well so hop around um use um, cheap trail cameras to your advantage um or you know i don't do that that often but i have done it with some success um but just move around um and and do some observation sits and do some early season scouting but um, instead of sitting in one particular area, hop around um, and and just compile more information. Right,
0: right. That's pretty good advice, man. Well, I tell you what, I really appreciate you taking time to uh, come on the podcast today, chat with us a little bit, and uh, talk to us about, uh, basically we just BS'd for uh, an hour about how you approach uh, public ground and um, the success that you how i mean how that has led to success so um man thanks for coming on andrew and uh good luck this spring doing whatever it is you do shed turkey mushrooms and then good luck uh this upcoming fall as well
1: well i i really appreciate it dan um you do a great job here on this podcast and um i look forward to uh 2018's podcast and, and catching up and learning more from you
0: Huge shout-out to Andrew for taking time to come on the podcast, man. Really appreciate uh, your insight on how you approach hunting public ground. Huge shout-out to each and every one of you for listening to this podcast. Again, without you, uh, none of this happens. Also, be sure to take advantage of the Huntera discount for the next three days. That's uh, something my buddy... I had to weasel out of my buddy Ben Harshine. And uh, again... Huge shout out to all of the partners of the podcast Exodus Trail Cameras, Wasp Broadheads, Gearhead Bows, Ozonix, Lone Wolf, Bighorn Outfitters, Ripcord Arrowrests. Please go out and support those companies because they support this podcast and uh, they're all badass companies that make badass products. Please go to iTunes or wherever you download this podcast, the sportsman's nation podcast network and leave a review. Those help out tremendously. So thank you very much. Go to all of the social media platforms for both the nine finger chronicles and the sportsman's nation podcast network. We are on Facebook and we are on Instagram. So please go follow all those things. Also, This Friday is a new podcast, Southern Ground Podcast. They're going to talk a lot about what it's like to hunt in the South and uh, some really big things coming from that podcast as well. I'm excited to see how that turns out. And um, not only is that podcast going to be great for everybody, but great for the Southern guys who feel that they, you know, they hunt way different than the rest of the nation and uh, I tell you what this podcast is going to uh, going to take care of that so keep an eye out for that I think that's it guys I don't think I have anything other anything other I'm slowly fading into blackness I am going to go to bed now so have a good rest of your day <laughs> and if you're going to be in a tree stand for the love of God people wear your damn safety harness. Have a good day.